Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. I want to begin uh, the sermon this morning by telling you about a couple that Sue and I have known for decades. They got married around the same time we did, uh, maybe a few months earlier. The great with children. When our kids were younger, they were brilliant with them. They so loved them, so yeah, nurtured them and treated them like they were their own. Our kids got along with them, hence, very easily. Uh, looked forward to seeing them uh, and still do. And they've been walking with the Lord for many, many years. Unless they were sick on holidays or they had to work, you'll find them at church, joyfully serving uh, in some capacity. Lovely, lovely couple. If there was a couple, uh, love children who would be make great parents it would be them Uh, one particular year though they deliberately uh, decided to skip two church services it's the mother's day service and the father's day service they used to attend but as time went by just got harder and harder and harder until it became too painful for them i'm not sure to this day whether they still skip those two services you might already have guessed the reason being uh, that the, the reason for them skipping those two services is because they were not able to have children. It's a pain and agony that Hannah only knew too well as we continue with our sermon series, A Child is Born, the Miraculous Births of the Bible. The story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8. There was a man named Elkanah from the tribe of Ephraim who lived in the town of Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim. He was a son of Jeroham and and grandson of Elihu and belonged to the family of Tofu, I mean Tohu, a part of the clan of Zuth. Elkanah, these Jewish names, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Every year, Elkanah went from Ramah to worship and offer sacrifices to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phineas, Phineas, that's right, Phineas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Each time Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he would give one share of the meat to Penina and one share to each of her children. And even though he loved Hannah very much, he would give her only one share because the Lord had kept her from having children. Penina, her rival, would torment and humiliate her because the Lord had kept her childless. This went on year after year after year. Whenever they went to the house of the Lord, Penina would upset Hannah so much that she would cry and refuse to eat anything. Her husband, Elkanah, would ask her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you always so sad? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? So first up from the passage, we're introduced to this man called Elkanah. From his genealogy, we can deduce that he comes from a respected family. Not only that, uh, he's a devout man. 
He would make annual trips to Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices to God with his family. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was at the time. The Ark of the Covenant was, of course, the symbol of God's presence. Elkanah was most likely well-to-do. It would seem from verse 2 that Hannah was his first wife. Her name means favored. It is anything but favored because she's barren. And this would explain or could explain why Elkanah decides to take on another wife. If so, we don't know whose idea it was. Perhaps we have a repeat of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar dynamic. To rub salt in the wounds, the name of the second wife, Penina, means fruitful. And indeed, she was fruitful. She bore Elkanah several children. And so you can imagine worshiping God at Shiloh is not a pleasant experience at all for Hannah. As they celebrate their covenant relationship with God at the family table, Elkanah would give one portion of the sacrifice per person. One portion of sacrifice per person. While this is a fair arrangement, it accentuates Hannah's grief coming from her barrenness. And this morning, we're going to look at how each of them respond to Hannah's sorrow and grief. And then we're going to learn three things about Hannah's response. So three, we're going to look at three. There the three responses of, of uh, Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah. And then we're going to look at Hannah's response and three things we can learn from that. First, Penina. While Hannah dreads making the annual trip, Penina, on the other hand, loves it because she'd used the occasion to deliberately mock, humiliate, and torment Hannah. Her barrenness. She would make a scene of Hannah's barrenness until Hannah breaks down emotionally. And she would do this year after year after year after year. And the reason we're told is Penina saw Hannah as a rival, as a competitor. And this is how one commentator, Bible commentator, imagines the conversation at the table. Now, do you all, uh, now all of you children, do you have your food? My, there's so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Hannah, can you give me a hand? Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah. Yes, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes. Hannah wants children very, very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too, Hannah? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Why? Because God won't let her. Doesn't God like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? You can imagine. And it's a pretty re realistic 
depiction of that conversation at the family table. What a horrible response, you might say. And you're right. And yet this is something that is so easy to do, something we've probably done and will do, God forbid, but it's true. Maybe not in this particular context, but in others. Let me explain. When things go well for us, when we come into success, it is very easy to be proud and take credit for it. When things go well for us, it's very easy to think that it's all because of our choices, our decisions, our genes, our heritage. That's one of the terrible things about the human heart. I remember talking to a father about his boys at school, his three boys. He was immensely proud of them. The kids were doing well with their studies at school. They were excelling in sports, and they were all following the Lord. Nothing wrong with him expressing his pride. But as he went on, it was very clear to me and Sue that he was actually praising himself more than his boys. He was actually praising himself more than God. He gave God credit, but he took most of it for himself. You see, the proud will give glory to God, but only as a footnote. Just think back to the times when we come across the downtrodden, the times when we come across the poor, when we come across the disadvantaged, when we come across those who are struggling in ways, in areas of life that perhaps we are not struggling in. We don't want to admit this, but the first, one of our first assumptions is, I wonder what they did wrong. I wonder if they're where they're at because of some choices they've made. If they were more responsible like I am, if they're more responsible, hardworking like I am, maybe they wouldn't be in the financial situation that they're in. And we attribute their, 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 the challenges in life that they face down to them. And of course, we, we're, we're doing well. And it's because I'm responsible. It's because I make good choices and right choices. I bet that's why they're struggling. The reality is we're not, as, not nearly as responsible for our success as when we've been led to think and believe. Keller, Timothy Keller elaborates, elaborates, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they're born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We're not infinite creators, but finite dependent creatures. Penina taking credit for being able to bear children is not only de delusional, but is grossly prideful. Proverbs 21, verse 4, haughty eyes, a proud heart, and evil actions are all sin. See, in the church, we tend to focus on sins of actions, not sins of attitudes, do we? 
We make a big scene about sins of actions. But when it comes to the attitudes of the heart, what do we, what do we say? Oh, that's just, that's just being human. But we're told that God looks at the heart. And when we are proud and arrogant, people might not see it, but God sees it. And in God's eyes, haughty eyes and a prideful heart is as sinful as the act of sin in itself. Her treatment, Penina's treatment of Hannah was woeful. And God took notice of that far more than her worship at the temple, far more than her praise that she was offering to God with the lips. Oh, Yahweh, we're covenant people. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Lifting her hands, spiritual words, religious words oozing out of her mouth. God took more notice at what was in her heart. And we see this confirmed in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. The Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer him sacrifices. That God is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer him sacrifices. So that's Penina's response. What about Elkanah? The author tells us that Elkanah loves Hannah very, very much. But he's probably tearing his hair out watching this conflict and tension between Penina and Hannah being played out year after year after year. And this particular year was quite bad. So he tries to cheer Hannah up and give her some encouragement and perspective. Honey, why are you so upset to the point you're refusing to eat? Ignore Panina's words. Don't take note of what she's saying. Don't focus on what you don't have, which is what she's trying to get you to do. Focus on what you have. You may not be able to have children, but you should be grateful that you have me. You should be grateful that I love you. Isn't that something? Not very sensitive, is he? It's like saying to someone who's lost a child, you really should be grateful for the child you've got left or the children you've got left. Focus on them. Look, Elkanah means well, but minimizing Hannah's pain and loss is not helpful. He's making things worse. I get what he's trying to do because I've done this on many, many occasions with Sue trying to fix her and problem solve whenever she tells me about her struggles. And all you men or husbands, you don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm still learning that it's better to just sit with Sue, listen to her, empathize, and say as little as possible. Or say something only when she asks for my opinion. You might have heard of this fairy tale, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a man who listened to his wife, and he lived happily ever after. If you find yourself talking to someone who's grieving because they're unable to conceive, or in some other uh, difficult situation that they're in, here are some things not to say and say. It is, it is adapted from an article written by a friend of ours after she had a painful miscarriage. What not to say? 
One, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. If this were true, we don't need God, do we? Two, you will have to accept God's will. You must submit to God's will. This may be true, but I'm not sure if you're the one to say it. It is perhaps better to pray that they will come to that realization for themselves with God's grace and help. God has a purpose in allowing this. Again, this is probably too true, but save the conversation for another time. Like the second uh, thing not what, on what not to say, pray instead that they will see this truth for themselves or initiate this discussion with you. A better statement might be, even when nothing makes sense, God's good purpose for your life still remains. Even if nothing makes sense, God's good purpose for your life still remains. Next one, have you thought about adoption? Again, it is something that I advise you to not bring up in conversation. Let them bring it up themselves. Besides, adoption is not for everyone. Not everyone is keen. Like this couple I started out the story with, they weren't keen on adoption. They weren't keen on fostering. They decided, uh, yeah, not to go down that track at all. Time will heal everything. Remember, empathy is much better than empty cliches. What to say? Here's some things. I'm so sorry that this is happening to you or any variation of this. I cannot imagine what you're going through or any other variation of this. I don't know what to say, but I'm with you. I'm with you. Or I'm praying for you that you will experience his peace and comfort during this difficult time. Of course, only say this if you actually pray for the person. Uh, finally, I'm here for you to vent. I'm here for you to process what you're going through. I promise I will listen, and I promise not to judge you, and I promise not to give you any advice. I'll just be there to listen to you, for you to unload. Finally, we look at Hannah's response, and it's found from verses 9 to 11. One time after they had finished their meal in the house of the Lord at Shiloh, Hannah got up. She was deeply distressed, and she cried bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. Meanwhile, Eli the priest was sitting in, in his place by the door. Hannah made a solemn promise, Lord Almighty, look at me, your servant. See my trouble and remember me. Don't forgive don't forget me. If you give me a son, I promise I will dedicate him to you for his whole life and that he will never have his hair cut. A symbol of consecration. That's all that that is. We're not saying anymore. Hannah continued to pray to the Lord for a very long time. Eli, the priest, who sees Hannah, mistakes her for being drunk because while her lips were moving, she couldn't hear her pray. She corrects him, no, I'm not drunk, sir, she answered. I haven't been drinking. I am desperate, and I've been praying, pouring out my troubles to the Lord. Don't think I'm a worthless woman. I've been praying like this because I am so miserable. Go in peace, Eli said, and may the God of Israel give what you have asked for. May you always think kindly of me, she replied. Then she went away, ate some food, 
and was no longer sad. Underline that, okay? No longer sad. And then the sequence. Verse 19, the next morning, the next morning, Elkanah and his family got up early, and after worshiping the Lord, they went back home to Ramah. Elkanah had intercourse with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord answered her prayer. And so it was that she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel and explained, I ask the Lord for him. There are three things I want us to see from Hannah's response. The first is Hannah turns to God in prayer. Hannah turns to God in prayer. That was how she responded to her pain, to her loss, to her struggle, to her grief. There's a time and place for quiet and contemplative prayer, but this wasn't it. The author is so refreshing, refreshingly honest about Hannah's state of heart and state of emotions when she prays. She's in deep anguish, we read. She's desperate for answers. She's feeling miserable. She can't understand why God is withholding from her a simple longing just to be a mom. And so she cries out to God. She wouldn't be crying quietly, okay? She wouldn't be in contemplation here. She would have been crying out to God with tears in her eyes, heartbroken, devastated, angry, confused, all the emotions you can imagine. God, do you have something against me? God, have I done something wrong? Is it because, if you close my womb, is it because you can see that I will make a terrible mom? Is that why my womb is closed? Because you who see the end from the beginning could see that I would make a terrible mom. Is this what's happening here? In Jewish theology, barrenness was a sign of God's displeasure. It's not God's truth, but in Jewish theology, in their minds, barrenness was a sign of God's displeasure. So she's feeling insecure about her relationship with God. She's feeling insecure about her status before God. I must have done something wrong. That's why I am barren. But notice, she doesn't withdraw from God in her state of confusion. She doesn't withdraw from God in a state of, of, of anguish. She doesn't withdraw from God in bitterness. Instead, she comes before God and she pours out her heart before the Lord. She prays and tells him how she truly feels, how she's struggling, how she can't understand why this is happening to her, why God is allowing this to happen to her. Tim Chester writes, one of the main reasons we do not pray more is that we do not feel the need to pray. We think we can manage without God. And so our prayers end up a duty to perform, options in our busy day. Prayer was not a duty or an option for Hannah. She did not get up from the meal because she had realized she had not had a quiet time that day. It was the cry of an anguished soul. And the cry of prayer is a cry of faith. It arises from the belief that God is a father who's able, powerful enough, and willing, loving enough to answer. What creates great praying is a deep sense of our need and a deep sense 
of God's care. The second thing we see from Hannah's response is this, yeah, something amazing. You might have picked it up and I've given you hints before. Do you notice that Hannah regains her appetite? You see that, don't you? She's no longer downcast, we're told. She's no longer sad. Clearly, after her prayers before God, she's a different person. But the striking thing is the change in her occurs without her knowing how or if God will answer her prayer in the way she hoped. Do you notice that? The change in her occurred before God, before her knowing how God would answer her prayer or if God would even answer her prayer. I hope you see that. She had no clue. She cried out to the Lord as she had been crying out to the Lord before, perhaps this time more desperately than other times. And yet God didn't open her womb. So what chances are that God would open her womb this time? No clue. No idea. But she was a changed person. And that's the second thing we see about Hannah. She's transformed in the presence of God. She's transformed by the presence of God. In Psalm 73, we see something similar. If you haven't read the psalm, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. The author is struggling. The author of Psalm 73 is struggling to understand why righteous people like himself who love God, who are committed to doing the right thing, are having such a hard time in life while the wicked people are having the time of their lives. They don't seem to be struggling. Everything they touch turns to gold, but everything he touches turns to something else. So he's disillusioned with God. He's angry at God. But something happens to him, too, like Hannah. In verses 16 to 17, Psalm 73, when I try to understand all this, this seeming injustice that's going on, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny, the destiny of the wicked. I love the message translation of this verse, till I enter the sanctuary of God, and then I understood the whole picture. I understood the whole picture. It is in the presence of God that we find new strength. It is in the presence of God that we soar high on wings like eagles. It is in the presence of God that we run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. It is in the presence of God that we see the bigger picture, that we get a fresh and different perspective on life. This is why I can't understand, and I'm not being judgmental here in saying this, but I can't understand why when people who are experiencing what Hannah and the author of Psalm 73 experience or something similar, I can't understand why people would stay away from God I can't understand why people would stay away from their brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't understand why people in that situation would stop coming to church altogether. This is honestly one of the worst decisions you can make. Seriously. And I repeat again, I'm not being judgmental. I've seen so many Christians, when they hit the wall, the first thing they do is they withdraw. They withdraw. 
They're not in communication with God. They're not following the Lord. I need time away from God. I need a break from God. I need a break from church. Of course, the break becomes not a break, becomes forever. They stop coming. They withdraw from the community. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord and through his bride, the people of God. Amen? You won't get the answers you need by not being in communication with God. You won't get the help that you need, the help that you need, not the help you want, the help that you need by withdrawing yourself from the presence of God. Please don't make that decision. Follow Hannah's example. She turned to the Lord. She cast all of her troubles onto the Lord. She came before God and expressed her grief, her anger, and her confusion. And it was in the presence of God that she was transformed. The third thing I want us to see is that Hannah is part of a much bigger story that, that God is writing. The point of Hannah's story is not every woman who's unable to conceive that they pray hard enough, God will give them a child. That is not the point of 1 Samuel 1. Hannah knew this, and the evidence for this is found in her response, which makes it very clear that Samuel was not the source of her, of her joy. Samuel was not the source of her identity. Samuel was not the source of her worth. She vowed to the Lord in verse 11, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you straight away. And she kept the word. The moment Samuel was weaned, she brought him to the temple so he could be trained for God's service for the rest of his life. She recognized that Samuel, from the word go, that Samuel is a gift from God. He does not belong to her. Samuel does not belong to her, but to the Lord who is called to serve his Lord and his purpose. She had no idea at the time, of course, but as it turns out, Samuel became one of the most well-known prophets in the Bible, the last judge of Israel, the one who was instrumental in appointing King David, the greatest king Israel had ever known, and most significantly, his direct descendant, Jesus, will become the long-awaited Messiah. Furthermore, while there is no written record of Samuel's prophecies about a future Messiah, Peter, the apostle, in his sermon to onlookers after they had witnessed him and John, you know, heal the paralyzed man, the lame beggar, if you remember, Peter identifies him as being the first prophet to speak of the days when a Messiah would come. In Acts chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, and if you were here two weeks ago, you remember me saying that Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3 is very key in understanding the whole story of the Bible. And Peter is citing that verse here. Through your offspring, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, that is Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So it was prophet Samuel who foresaw this. 
one of the first prophets. I'm not the first prophet according to the apostle Peter. So in a way, we owe a great deal to Samuel. But we also owe a great deal to Hannah. What if she had given up on the Lord in bitterness? She didn't. And, she, and when she was finally blessed with a son she had longed for, for so long, she devoted him to the priesthood to serve God. And that's not the end of the story. We know that. Because more than 1,100 years later, in the fullness of time, God, in his love, did not withhold, but devoted his own beloved son for our salvation, miraculously born of a virgin. I'm certain right now, Hannah would be blown away knowing the part that she got to play in God's bigger story of redemption. I can hear her saying, I'm awed that God in his grace would use me this way. Praise God that he didn't give up on me. When I was cranky, when I was miserable, when I had lost faith, when I was terrible to be with, when I wasn't as faithful as I should be, he held on to me, he encouraged me, he persisted with me. He held fast to me. And Hannah, of course, represents a long list of ordinary people that God uses and will continue to use in order to move his plan forward. So I want to challenge you for your application this week. If you have closed your heart to God, and you know whether you have, or maybe you haven't quite closed your heart to God, but you're about to. Maybe you've shut the door and you're about to turn the key so that when God turns the knob, he can't open the door. You know where you're at. But if that's where you're at, if you've withdrawn yourself from God, if you're about to withdraw yourself from God, if you're disappointed with him, you've upset at him because of unanswered prayers or because of whatever the reason, I want to encourage you this week and during this Advent to turn back to God in prayer like Hannah did. Pour out your heart to him. Vent to him. Process whatever it is that's troubling you with him. Process whatever it is that is distressing you, that is confusing you, that is making you raging mad at God. Process all of those things with the Lord in his presence and not outside of his presence. I believe with all of my heart that as you do and draw near to God like Hannah, God himself will draw near to you. And there and there, there and there you will find and experience his comfort, his peace, his joy, his love, his hope. Let's pray. Lord, it is not by coincidence, but by divine appointment that we are listening to your word this morning in person and then those online. I believe, Lord, with all of my heart that you are appealing to each one of us who are considering withdrawing from you, who are, who are having issues with you. It's just that barrier. There's just something that we're holding on to that has happened to us or didn't happen to us, something you've done or something you didn't do that we're hanging on to and that it's causing this rift. It is causing this 
this breakdown in relationship. We're not in a sweet place with you like we used to be. We might even still be talking to you. We might still be coming to church, but in our hearts, there's a hardness towards you. There's a closing off to you. I pray for all of us who are in that situation, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit's power this morning and by your grace, reconcile us with you. Help us, Lord, to bring our anguish to you. Help us, Lord, to bring our troubles, our distress, our heartbreak, our desperation to you and the reasons for those emotions. And Lord, we would be ruthlessly honest with you and you don't expect any less. It's crazy that we think that the best decision we can make when we're struggling is to cut ourselves off from you. Lord, we will forever be troubled. We will forever be grieved. We will forever stay in confusion. If we try and process all of this, all of, all of what we are going through, all of, all of the grief that we have towards you outside of your presence rather than in your presence, help us see today through Hannah's life and through the psalmist's life in Psalm 73 that it is by coming into your presence and only in your presence we will see the bigger picture. We will see the missing puzzles. And if we don't see the missing puzzles, Lord, we will receive your comfort. We will have an encounter with you. And I can't predict when that will happen. But Lord, the promise is there that change will occur, transformation occur, will occur, just as we saw in Hannah. Hannah was transformed before she ever knew that she would conceive Samuel. She did not know that. She was already a transformed, changed person. And that's because her joy was in you, not from being pregnant with Samuel, not from being a mom, but by being in deep relationship with you, by having that relationship with you restored. So I pray for that this morning for those of us who are listening in person and listening online. Those are in that place. I ask by your grace and by your spirit that our relationship by Christmas will be restored. That our relationship with you will be healed. That we will be in relationship and in fellowship with you again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.